Alright, so, Kyle Style Podcast again. Welcome back to part two of my slightly psychotic parsing of the Omer Harrison review. Again, this uh, entire interview was uh, posted on Sam Harris's podcast, Waking Up. It's available on his blog, I'll include links. Uh, I urge you to, of course, listen to my critique of it, because I'm obviously adding an immense amount of value. However, listening to it in the original, from the original source, uh, would help you maybe uh, pick this up and uh, then come back to me and maybe follow along and pick up some little nuggets of information. So, uh, this is part two. Uh, this one, from the last episode, kind of uh, shifts into a little bit different territory. It's less about uh, uh, the sort of arguing about motives, like in the last uh, episode. It gets more into the specific figures, specific players, specific doctrines that are that are occurring in the world, that are, you know, driving a lot of the... Uh, that are driving Islamists, that are uh, create confusion with uh, non-Muslims, and uh, in, in Ormer's case, uh, he believes that these uh, are a smokescreen and that they are not representative. Sam Harris, on the other hand, does believe that these various views are representative and that they are backed up by poll results. So uh, I'll leave the intro with that and we'll just dive right into uh, a mother load of bad ideas. <laughs> Making money in the intellectual sphere, in the publishing world, yes. it does does involve criticizing or criticizing Islam it is do- one way to do it. It does not, but publishing on other topics does not involve these endless charges of bigotry and racism. It does not involve the security concerns you reap when you deal with this topic. I could write books about Mormonism and never look over my shoulder, never worry about security concerns, never worry about being attacked as a racist or a bigot, and make the same points about religion in general. This is a unique problem to Islam. If I took all your words and we replaced Islam with Mormonism, I'm sure that you would get some very strong rebukes from the Mormon community. Nothing analogous to what happens with, with Islam. Yeah, I've known plenty of Mormons, and, you know, they just are Westerners, and they just don't have the same ire. They just don't have it in their mindset and in their uh, community to launch violence against people for uh, denigrating Mormonism or Joseph Smith or whatever. And, yeah, it is not analogous whatsoever. And you can criticize all kinds of other religions and not have to face the same kinds of threats that, say, the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists had to face. But let's let's continue. You, we, we literally yeah, just went okay. through one paragraph. Yeah, okay, let's continue. So we are at... Uh, let me just turn the page here. The books. Okay, yes. The books that make a project Islamic Reformation are not works of scholarship or even well-crafted popular texts. They are almost exclusively political pamphlets of a very personal nature that often begin as biography and end as self-help, except the self in this case includes a quarter of the world's people and the help may or may not come at the end of a missile. Ayan Hirsi Ali, who deserves empathy for her personal ordeals, but not her conclusions, released such a book earlier this year with neat Manichaean categories delineating good and bad Muslims, as well as the expected checklist of proposed reforms. More tracks will certainly follow, because publishers love a good reformist, and the affluent Western audience that consumes these books loves having most of their pre-existing beliefs confirmed rather than challenged. Okay. <clears throat> well. Let's talk so, about this. Okay. Again, well, so, so why you, you pay lip service to Ayan deserving some sympathy. Okay, but no, you, no, 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 no. It's not. It's not. I, it's, I would no. never attack her personally. I think oh. that she went through a tremendous ordeal and the people who do attack her personally for what she went through or deny the, the uh, immense ordeals that she went through are, are lacking in moral empathy. Okay. But you, you still cynically imply that her work as a critic of the, of the very ideology that produced this misery for her is purely opportunistic and driven by a desire to make money. I mean, you, you, you realize... I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head perfectly there. When you said that her, the ideology that, that uh, put her through this ordeal, because you and Ayan Hirsi Ali and other people, what you guys do is you, you do not uh, distinguish between a, a particular political ideology, which is fascistic and totalitarian and Wahhabist and Salafist and very violent, and the doctrine and religion of Islam. Okay, so... He's making a claim that uh, Sam Harris and people like Ayan Hirsi Ali don't 
have subtlety that they are sort of glossing over all of his Muslims as being violent jihadists. Uh, bigots and far-right people might make that assertion. Uh, I think that people like Sam Harris are a little more nuanced than that. Uh, he almost had a point, though, in saying that, in sort of claiming that that it's people like Sam Harris would lack subtlety. Now, the thing is, is that if you are an atheist like Sam Harris is, like, I don't know, I am, uh, like many of his fans are, yeah, you do kind of lump it all together. Although, if there was some militant branch of the Catholic Church that was going out and committing violence, and yet you had Catholic neighbors who just go to church and then go work at the bakery, you know, the rest of the time, yeah, you would discern between the two. And the thing is, is that, in some sense, the violent ideologies coming from Islam do claim to be backed up by the texts. ISIS does claim to be a sort of holy state, that they are backed by Quranic doctrine. And the, they then hold hostage all the other more reasonable people of the world. Now, you cannot take from them that they feel or claim that they are backed by Islam. They are saying that that is so, and that is what they believe. But you can see that there's a power dynamic between those really motivated people to uh, that are motivated to commit violence in the name of jihad and, and Islam and the people who are their victims. The people of, of that are living in the ISIS-controlled areas just want to be left alone. They just want to live their lives. But they are being in, constantly intervened with by these you know, ISIS maniacs. That that division between the what Sam Harris refers to as the like more serious Muslims or the people who take their faith seriously and not is a central part of a lot of his work. It's about motivating beliefs. Like if you really aren't that motivated by your belief in Allah or Islam, then you're not going to be doing the maybe the good things in the book, but you're also not going to be doing the bad things in the Quran either. You're not going to be doing the things that promote violence. This is pretty simple, and it's it's sort of it's another example, I think, of Omer being condescending to the knowledge and information that people like Sam Harrison, maybe Majid Nawaz, have they actually have, and that they are on par or on parallel with Omer, just because they're not Muslim and just because they aren't being overly politically correct, does not mean that they don't grasp the the granularity of the situation or the gravity of the situation and can't deal with this even-handedly. Wow, that was a pretty good little aside. Let's keep going. And that, that, that is that's the major not true. criticism. I, I, do, I do that across the board every time I raise the issue. That's just simply untrue. But Really? Okay. Yes, so I talk is, about is, ideas. Is Islam right? the motherload of bad ideas or is Wahhabism the motherload of bad ideas? Is Islam, does Islam marry religious ecstasy and sectarian hatred or does Wahhabism marry religious no, it, ecstasy it, and sectarian? It, it is, at, well, as... Is Islam as we especially make... belligerent in your words and inimical to the norms of civil discourse or is Wahhabism and violent jihadism especially belligerent and inimical to the norms of civil discourse. We'll get, we will get into that. All right. I kind of want to say it's maybe both. I mean, it depends on what kind of level you want to go to. On the one hand, all forms of irrationality are potentially dangerous. Um, and spiritual morality and believing in the supernatural can really lead to some very dark places. So in one sense, um, any form of belief in, in ancient books as being handed down by gods backs them up with supernatural authority and then you can act on them and do all kinds of atrocious things. Um, so those are potentially a threat. However, specific ideologies, again, like if there was a militant branch of the Baptist church that was going around doing ISIS type shit, that would also be not conducive to 
a stable civilization. So it depends on what scale you want to analyze it to, and where should you put your most of your attention and concern. Again, I'm not concerned with the Catholics that, that run the bakery and go to church. I would be concerned about the militant Catholic army that wants to uh, practice some literal form of Catholicism and go out and start committing violence and, and harming people. Right, So you have to put your focus on what is most important. What's most important is not stopping Muslims from believing in Allah. It's completely their right to do that. But what you need to focus on is stopping the violent jihadists like ISIS who are trying to destroy civilization for uh, religious reasons. But as you know, the problem is bigger than Wahhabism. And the fact that you would circumscribe it just to Wahhabism... For any listeners who aren't aware Wahhabism originates uh it was a it is a highly orthodox and conservative uh form of Islam that it tries to stamp out anything that is uh, any semblance of animism or uh like polytheism they they even dis, uh dissuade people from visiting things like tombs Right, because that's a form of idolatry. Very, very orthodox, very, very conservative. It's a real problem, right? So I, I want Hobbism to get is the prime mover of it. I want to get into that, but I, I'm just now focused on Ion. I want to move through this systematically because what should be interesting from your point of view as a writer, and should be interesting, I hope, to our listeners, is just how this piece of yours that you took the time to write and that you think just makes the case clearly against us communicates nothing to me but your misunderstanding of the situation. And that is a mis- I quote you and I quote her words. Homer. What you, in that paragraph did you d- d- do again, I not understand? You, you, your, tr- your treatment of Ayan here. So you, so you say, yes, she's had this terrible experience. But again, she is just an opportunist who's out to make money in this reform Islam program. And just consider her circumstance for a second. I mean, you, you realize how much easier her life would be if she were part of the herd that just refuses to engage these issues. I mean, you, you real, do you realize how talented she is? Do you realize that, that when a person starts out as an uneducated Somali girl who doesn't speak a word of Dutch and in a few short years gets a degree in political science and becomes a member of parliament and who, who speaks half a dozen languages at that point, you realize that there are other things she can do in life if she just wants to get ahead and make money beyond just pissing off a mob of religious maniacs, and, th- and then having to suffer not only their threats, but just the, the condescending stupidity of critics who don't have a fraction of the courage she has, who haven't suffered any of the abuse she has, who haven't taken any of the risks she has, but who then decide that it is probably a good idea to make her situation even more dangerous by attacking her as a bigot. Okay, I mean, you want to talk about opportunism? The opportunism is on the side of the Islamist assholes at the Council of American Islamic Relations, CARE, who try to get Ayan disinvited from speaking at universities and pretend that she, okay, one of the most persecuted public intellectuals in living memory, is the one infringing on people's civil rights. Right on. Yeah, I mean, look, that's nonsense. And when she she was supposed to speak at Yale, and I think it was it was either canceled or there was some kerfuffle about that. And look, I'm a free speech fundamentalist, and I defended her right to speak as as Bill Maher, anyone, um, because you know the marketplace of ideas should not have this kind of uh, estrangement. But look, you're, you're peddling a fall uh, a fallacy here, because basically what you you are saying is that because of her personal ordeals, we that that exonerates or excuses the words that she has spoken, her arguments. This is what I'm focusing on: the arguments that she has made. She said Islam must be defeated. She said that we are at war with Islam. She said that we should bomb the lands of Islam. To me, her personal story now is irrelevant. I'm focusing on exactly what she has said. And to me, that is a deranged, deluded conclusion. And that if you do not speak up against that, I think that, well, your morals and ethics should be questioned. If anyone else said it, you wouldn't say, oh, look at all these things that they've done. Look at their, look at the personal ordeals that they went through. Look at their CV. No, absolutely nonsense. You attack the arguments. Okay, so Omer does kind of have a point here, which is that, yeah, you should attack the ideas, you should, you know, uh, dissect the arguments and not necessarily uh, be beholden to your compassion for the individual. However, in Ayan Hirsi Ali's specific case, I mean, she has 
if anything, Islam is at war with her. Uh, you know, her uh, partner, Theo Van Gogh, had his head cut off for making a, mini- a video that was uh, critical of spousal abuse in the Islamic community. And her association with him, and then her now her apostasy and her outspokenness towards uh, the Islamic world has made her a target, and not just a target of criticism, a target a target of actual credible threats. So maybe that you know, Omer needs to put the shoe on the other foot. Yeah, maybe uh, the the violent Islamists need to just discuss ideas, not make threats, as with the Salman Rushdie fatwa. Dis- discuss civilly ideas and concepts and come to a conclusion, not make threats and, uh, you know, maybe attempt to actually just kill people who disagree with you. People are not attacking her arguments. First of all, you just conceded that the work of an organization like CARE that tries to get her deplatformed, right, that goes after her rather than going after the theocrats who are hunting her. I'm not, I'm not a representative of CARE, Mr. Harris. No. God, okay. And he's not saying that you are, Omer. He's saying that there is a real and credible threat to Ayan Hirsi Ali, thus her stance in uh, opposition to their stance. I understand. And- Why go after Ayan and not go after the core problem here, which, I mean, you, you limited to Wahhabism, but why not go after... I have the- gone after Wahhabism, actually. Okay. But, and I but, think anyone who supports that, including the Saudis who are now funding an institution at Yale, should be barred from doing so and should be criticized very loudly, loudly and roundly. But also an obligation of a writer and an intellectual and someone in the public sphere is to stand up for minorities, the people who would be bombed under Ayan Hirsi Ali's policy. That- okay, I applaud Omer for being critical of Saudi Arabia. Uh, they are a religious and theocratic uh, and monarchical cesspool. Um, But to say, this is weird, because to say that Muslims are a minority, while at the same time then on the other, you know, out of the other side of your mouth, say that they aren't, that they are, there are billions and billions of them, well, they aren't technically a minority. The most common name in the world is Muhammad, which you probably know. Uh, So he's kind of got a double standard happening here, and doesn't actually, and isn't actually addressing the fact that People who are critical of Islam in the public sphere often receive a backlash, and not just from Wahhabists, which are the ultra-Orthodox again, uh, but from even more casual Muslims who uh, d- who take offense at, I guess, other people being offended by some of their beliefs and practices. People who okay. we were at war with do not Ayan have a voice. Does in this not debate. have a policy of bombing the Middle East. Ayan, now, Ayan's probably more hawkish than you are. I'm probably more hawkish than you are. But if Ayan's views have been treated to the misrepresentations that mine have, and I'm sure they have, I've I, you know I, I have I followed this reasonably closely. I have no confidence that you even know what her views are. And certainly you're not disposed to give a charitable reading of something in context or, or something that, that she might have said in an interview that didn't come out exactly right and that a further examination of her views in her books or in other interviews would give you a bigger picture of what she said. The editors of Reason Magazine were, were bewildered when she said this, and they asked her to clarify in the most charitable way that they could, and she still didn't. In fact, she doubled down. And recently, she's called for Benjamin Netanyahu to win the Nobel Peace Prize. I hope that's a position you disagree with. She's a great supporter of Sisi, who has launched a war not only on Islamists, remember, but on atheists as well, and killed more people than Morsi did, probably more than Mubarak has. And so this is a support. She's supporting right-wing dictators in one case, a right-wing, extreme right-wing chauvinistic politician in another case, and then calling for wars with Islam. I mean, at this point, the personal ordeal and, and her immense tra- tragedy is irrelevant to me. As much as I empathize with it, I'm focusing on her arguments, and you should too, instead of defending and giving her cover if you're a serious intellectual. Well, even if uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali does support um, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that she fully supports everything about his regime. If anything, it just means that maybe he's taking things, uh, you know, uh, seriously. 
right? Maybe he's taking the threat of mil- Islamic violence seriously, uh, militant Islam. Uh, maybe he's actually intending to do something about it. So you have, if you are an activist in the same sense that like uh, Hirsi Ali is, then you would support whoever is going to actually take action and take this, this threat seriously. And as has been pointed out in numerous places, a lot of leftist politicians and leftist uh, leftist activists are not taking it seriously. They're not taking Islam as a serious threat. They're not taking the uh, foundational documents of Islam, the the foundational texts of Islam, as seriously as a source of this violence that we're seeing. And so people turn away, right? They turn to somewhere else where they will have someone who's taking it seriously and, in some sense, at least understands it. Listen, I do focus on all of these specific claims, and all of them are incredibly complex to get into. And no, 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 no. Let's get them. Well, we, we will get into them. But the fact that we can't even get through the simplest of all possible disagreements, where information is very clear to put forward, right, doesn't give me much hope that we can deal with deeper issues here. Take, for instance, your, your claim here. And this, again, I'm, this is why I want to move through your review systematically. You, you have this line about Manichaean categories, right, delineating good and bad Muslims, okay? What are you saying here? I mean, say, are, are, you, are you doubting whether there are good and bad Muslims or tolerant and intolerant strands of Islam? I, I don't think you can be, right? So, no, no, no. What I'm saying is that someone from the outside putting Muslims into a category of Mecca and Medina Muslims is ultimately unhelpful and counterproductive. It's not going to reach anyone. The people you want to convince are not going to listen to you. And in general, I think it's a Stalinist technique when people from the outside begin categorizing. She, she's people. not from the outside. She's from the she's inside. An she's an ex-Muslim, right? Okay. She has lived in the Muslim world as a Muslim, was driven out of the Muslim world by violent theocrats, and lives every minute of her life under the shadow of their threats. She is in the Muslim world, arguably more than you are. She's right? not per- certainly not perceived to be, and she's not perceived to be an honest interlocutor okay. because of her very militaristic yes. views. Okay, but that says a lot. Forget her militaristic views. She's not. No, perce- they're central. They're not. But no, but she, they're not central to why she's not perceived as an honest interlocutor. She's not perceived as an honest interlocutor because she's an apostate. People are not trying to kill her because of her militaristic views. People are trying to kill her before she had any views because she was an apostate, right? You, everything is backwards for you. Yeah, cer- certain, uh, certain fascist groups, Islamic fascist it's groups. It's not just are, certain are, fascist groups. Are I after mean, her. The level after. of support for the killing of apostates in the Muslim world, as you undoubtedly high. know, is shockingly high. high, and it's Way not limited to Wahhabism, okay? Way too high. And look, people are... are uh, you want to talk about apostasy now, or you want to talk no, about it later? No, it'll, it'll come up later. But okay. it, but you can't just say way too high, way too high. You just tried to limit the problem to Wahhabism. You just tried to paint Ayan as being someone who has been marginalized for her hawkish views, right? Which you still have not characterized accurately. Uh, I quoted you her words directly. That Reason interview is a famous instance of someone misspeaking, not giving a full context for her views. I mean, like, look, how do I respond to something like that? If you say something chauvinistic and militaristic, you misspeak. It's it's an unfalsifiable It is impossible. No, it, it is falsifiable because she will not hide her views when you talk to her at length, right? She has written about these things. She's been interviewed again. I've interviewed her trying to put her, her comments in context. You could throw back at her what she said about Anders Breivik, right? That has been distorted and spun and used as a, a way of lying about her, her actual beliefs. So what he's talking about here is that uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali basically uh, gave a, a speech during a award presentation. She was receiving an award about Anders Breivik, who was the uh, Norwegian mass shooter who uh, killed 77 like young people on uh, an island there in uh, off of Norway. And he issued his own manifesto that he released before his bombing shooting attack. And Ayan was mentioned in it. He actually mentioned Ayan Hirsi Ali, and he commented on being, you know, mostly, you know, being paranoid to, vi- to the point of violence about... Uh, Europe being overrun by Islamists, right, by Islam in general. And she pointed out that partially his acts of violence were because 
there is no honest discourse in the media about the threat of Islam. Now, that might not—I mean—that might not seem reasonable, but it is when you consider the political climate that we're in, where any negative criticism of Islam is especially is viewed just as racism or purely as xenophobia, and that legitimate criticisms of Islam, Islamic doctrine and other Islamic uh, cultural practices, are incompatible in some sense, in many senses, with uh, European and American values. Okay, The fact that people aren't able to have open and honest discussions about this is creating people like Breivik, who operate in a vacuum, okay? They see a threat, the threat isn't taken seriously, and it ultimately leads to committing violence in order to draw attention to the issues. Now, this has been spun to where it makes it seem as though Ayan Hirsi Ali supported uh, Anders Breivik's rampage, which isn't true, but is uh, a tactic, again, this is sort of a, a way, a means of discrediting anybody who is a liberal or claims to be a liberal who steps out of line as far as a liberal narrative is concerned. And Ayan Hirsi Ali is not the first nor the last to have uh, kind of bore the brunt of this backlash of stepping out of line with the quote-unquote progressive uh, agenda. This has been done to me endlessly. The Islam is, a, is the mother load of bad ideas statement on Bill Maher's show. I have sa- already said I misspoke there. I should have said it was a mother load of bad ideas. And I can talk to you for an hour about why I think I should have said that. But there are still people who want to hold me to it is the mother load of bad ideas, as though there is no other uh, source of bad ideas on earth, right? You either want to understand where someone is coming from or you don't. And no, I'm, no it's not that. It's that you should hold people accountable for their words. Yet you don't right? hold them and accountable you, for their misstatements that they then clarify. How is, how is it a misstatement? She, 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 this entire interview, which I hope your, your readers and listeners read from 2007 in Reason magazine, she says that Islam must be defeated. Do you mean radical Islam? And she says, no, Islam, period. She did say that. And she also went on to say, once it's defeated, it can mutate into something peaceful. It's very dif- difficult to even talk about peace now. They're not interested in peace. So it's almost as though the uh, Islamic world has declared war on the rest of the world, and we have to bear the responsibility of taking that threat seriously. And we can't do that when everybody, like Omer, just continues to make it this uh, case of picking on the poor Muslims. They've brought this on themselves. They made Ayan Hirsi Ali an enemy of them. If they behaved differently, she would be on their side. Oh, yeah, in that same uh, interview, she also says, uh, But do I miss the religious experience? The feelings of belonging and family and community were powerful, but the price in terms of freedom was too high. In order to be able to live free, I've accepted living with the pain of missing my family. As for community, I experienced a very deep sense of community with my friends in Holland. Okay, so, yeah, she she's not completely bonkers about the threat of Islam. She does realize that she did have a community and a place in that community, but it had a trade-off, and she chose the trade-off of living more free and being able to be a member of a Dutch parliament, to be an, an academic, to be a writer, without, you know, outside of the Islamic community, and to make a, a way for herself and a name for herself and stand on her own, not hide in the community and just parrot what everyone else was saying and repeating, uh, you know, religiously. Yes, I've that's said the I, I, I ha- Okay, I have it said the same thing. This is hermeneutical interpretation here. It's very clear. No, it does, because what, is Islam, what does it mean to say Islam has to be defeated? Islam is a set of ideas. She's not calling for genocide there. She's calling for defeating the ideas. 
I think Islam is a dangerous religion. I have made no secret of that. I have said things just like that. Islam has to be defeated. I'll say it now. Islam has to be defeated. Okay? Why? How, how is it that that kind of statement should not be perceived? I, as I, I think all religion has to be defeated. All right, I'm an atheist. Well, okay, but an idea is not merely defeated. You're talking about the people I, I who have believe written... in this idea. Uh, yeah, I suppose in some sense, if the people who believe in those ideas decide to take up arms against the rest of civilization for completely insane reasons having to do with the afterlife and, you know, what God wants them to do, then yeah, they will have to be defeated until they become more reasonable and become part of civilization. I have written an article titled, Science Must Destroy Religion. Okay, so these are ideas that we can talk and about. And it never will. Uh, I mean, on that point, it never will. Um, Listen, the, the, the problem here is an unwillingness on your part to enter an open-ended conversation about ideas, about what your partner, your opponent in this case, thinks that is proceeding on the basis of a modicum of charity where you actually want to understand what the other person's view is. No, because is. look, the game is rigged. There's a double standard here. If someone criticizes you or Ion, that we're attacking your motives or being uncharitable. But if you say militaristic, chauvinistic things, Absolutely then you're misspeaking. Not. Then no, you're no, misspeaking. No, no, no. She it's... misspoke. You misspoke. It's, it's the same thing over and over again. All right. Sorry, Omer. But having literally, like he, he wanted the listeners to do, going back and reading the... Uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali interview with Reason Magazine, reading her comments in context does not make her seem like a warmonger of, of any kind. She's honestly speaking with knowledge about the threat to free peoples that Islam poses and that there are very real people believing these things. And that have the same kinds of people who were spurred on to target her for murder, for death, right? And so him claiming, Omer claiming that this is just them complaining. This is just people like Sam Harris complaining. Like, oh, you're just misrepresenting my views because you caught me saying a bad thing. And now, now I'm going to backpedal and say that it's just you uh, are the one who's doing it and you're, you're misrepresenting my views. No, you, the people really are. I mean, he already did it. And now that I'm reading this interview, uh, yeah, I mean, they are being railroaded by people who refuse to take their arguments seriously. I mean, I'll post the, the link to this you know, interview in my blog post so that you can see exactly what I'm talking about. I might even quote this, <laughs> quote this thing in my blog post because it's, it's very clear when you read it in context. I rarely misspeak, okay? I occasionally misspeak, but I rarely do. And I, I rarely, obviously, miswrite, but... I am increasingly on my guard through cruel experience, I've been taught this, against people who are only pretending to want to have a conversation on this topic and are just trying to defame another person. Now, Ayan, you are talking about her as though she would execute a nuclear first strike on the Muslim world, right? Well, that's uh, your position, right? That is what, a position that has been ascribed to me by utterly dishonest people. Right now, do you, I hope you were joking. No, I mean, there were certain preconditions that, of course, that you gave. You didn't say, please correct me if I'm wrong, that we should have a nuclear first strike against any country. But if an Islamist regime came to power and had nuclear weapons, that's a possibility you would entertain. Is that is that a, a clear understanding of your view? Well, certainly not the way it's situated in your brain. It's not. <laughs> All right, I give that one a little like laugh break because that's that's just funny. Well, well, I mean, those are the words, maybe, but you know, not the way it's not the way it's actually foundationally linked to your other thoughts. No, that's incorrect. <laughs> Again, th this is something that will be obvious to our listeners. I mean, this is. I mean, the fact that you think you're entering this conversation in a way that is intellectually honest and open to having your views challenged and, and responsive to evidence that you didn't have a moment ago. I mean, it's as pure an act of self-deception as I've witnessed in a long time. You are so defensive. There is nothing I could say to you about the reality of publishing or about my experience as an author 
or about the, the opportunity cost or the security mm. cost or anything else that only I in this conversation am in a position to talk about. There's nothing I can say to you that modified your view of my opportunism and get rich quickery even slightly. And now we're proceeding on to much more difficult ground, right? Now we're yeah. talking about Ayan, now we're going to talk about Islam and apostasy. And I mean, this is not how you have a conversation with another human being. <laughs> another laugh break. I don't know what's so funny about that. It just seems funny. Like This is not how you have a conversation with another human being. I mean, he's got all these levels of dishonesty and like uh, defensiveness and all these arguments banked up, and he just keeps jumping from one to another, and he just can't follow a fairly simple uh, you know, pattern of discussion. You you have this um you, you you repeat this mantra over and over again as if you are the arbiter of truth. I've quoted you your own words in a completely self serving context and manner. You dismissed them. I've quoted you Ion's words. I didn't dis- you dismissed them. No, you no, dismissed I- them. You said it only okay, well you, you were very condescending, let's just say. Um and you don't want to engage with, your, with, with the text of your own words that I'm quoting back to you now. Of course I will engage with it. And I can justify saying something like, Islam has to be defeated, right? Please yeah. do. As, as you notice... No, I, what do you mean by that, Islam has to uh, be defeated? Uh, well, let's, no, let's tease this out. Well, because I can say that, that I think religion has to be defeated. I think... Yeah. I think how belief- do you defeat Islam? You're asking a different question now. You're asking how you think well, it's yeah, a, you Islam think it's a, you, you, you think well, it's I, I an unrealistic. What you mean by that statement? Otherwise, you're going to say I'm misquoting you. I think believing in revelation is intrinsically dangerous. I think that believing that one of your books was dictated by the creator of the universe is a stupid, divisive, dangerous thing to do. I yeah, think it goes. I think I think it goes nowhere worth going. I think the harms produced by this attitude are obvious undeniable and among the worst harms that humanity has ever suffered. And we have to get out of this business of believing in in revelation. Now, how do you do that? As you rightly observe, I have spent a lot of time focused on that problem. It's not exclusively what I focus on, and and less and less do I want to focus on it because I I am just repeating myself. I've said more or less everything I think on that topic. So it's, it's both boring for me and boring for my listeners. Like I said before, maybe there's something completely wrong with me, but I, I don't find this boring at all. I find this awesome. <laughs> but I, I think, yes, we have to get out of the religion business. We have to defeat religion. I can say it in a nice way, and I can say it in a provocative way, but I can certainly defend the claim, and I've said it every which way. Now, I also have justified ad nauseum a focus on specific religions on specific points where they present specific liabilities. I think that individual religions are not interchangeable. Which, again, if they're, if we were talking about like Catholic or Christian or Hindu suicide bombers uh, attacking European cities and crashing planes into buildings, then we would be discussing theological issues with Christianity. They have very different theologies. They have different ideas. They make different behavioral and logical uh, commitment. Can I just respond to what you said before? Because, yeah, yeah, okay. So, look, seeing that the Quran has problematic and violent verses, that is a statement of fact. Okay, anyone who disagrees with you there is lying. But saying that we are at war with Islam, saying that the central message of the Quran is jihad, these are value judgments. And in my mind, in in my opinion, in my estimation, they're very ill-informed ones, and they're ultimately going to lead to counterproductive strategies. And this, for me, this boils down to: What do you think Islam is? Is it just the, is it just the text, the the jihadist verses in the Quran, or is it more capacious than that? Well, obviously, it's it's fundamentally both. I mean, if you have uh, Muslims who pick and choose, and they they have their faith a la carte, as it were, then there's less to be concerned about them putting a lot of stock in the jihadist verses because they're going to, as Christians do, they're going to go with just gentle Jesus, meek and mild, not, uh, you know, Jesus, the bring them before me and slay me or slay them. So, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of both. And the thing is, it's the number of adherents at any given time in any different in any given country who are potentially going to you know, self-immolate or, uh, you know, commit suicide bombings or atrocities informed by those specific doctrines. 
Earlier I mentioned scholarly works, serious scholarly works on Islam. I'll give you the name of one that just came out from a very serious scholar, PhD in history who died recently. He was uh, fluent in eight languages, traveled throughout the Middle East. His name was Shahab Ahmed. And he wrote a book called What is Islam? And his definition of Islam was the capacious lived tradition of tradition of Muslims throughout history and how, how it actually exists today. So that includes, for example, poetry that includes wine i hope that you would not want to defeat either wine or poetry it includes music and includes a whole host of legal and political and spiritual um motivations that are inherent in the lived tradition it's not just about jihad so when you say islam must be defeated as a kind of blanket statement it that to me is ultimately very a very dangerous um and ill-conceived one because you're not getting at a, the heart of the matter, which is a political ideology that I refer to as Wahhabism and is a state ideology of our ally, Saudi Arabia, that propagates this and that did not exist before a specific period in history, did not exist. And number two, I think you denigrate or deny or reduce the actual tradition that people live in to this kind of slogan of jihad that the extremists are parroting. And so we miss the nuances when we use these kind of blanket statements. Okay, I, I don't think the real problem here is just people coming up with their own definition of Islam. I mean, if if every individual person was doing that, then there would have been something like a Protestant Reformation within Islam, and there wouldn't be these heavily influential teachers who hold sway. There, You wouldn't have an Abu, ba- Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi to create a highly violent sect because the father he wouldn't have followers they would all be reading the quran themselves and they would all be thinking their own thoughts and they would argue it out and they would hash it out and either they they done that because by you know omer's kind of inference here that everybody's kind of just practicing a cultural thing and they're all kind of uh you know progressing on their own uh in their own studies seriously or they, you know, and they did hash it out, and this is the, the result, right? You you can't uh, you can't come up with monopoly or with something other than monopoly by analyzing the monopoly rule book, right? You will come up with monopoly. So either they really did that, and they did independent study, and they all agreed that this is the correct course of action, or they were taught that this is what it means by someone who. Uh, you know, I guess is an Islamic scholar, whatever that kind of means. And secondly, I'm going to kind of split hairs here on the the cultural aspect. Yes, uh, in in some sense, Middle Eastern peoples, the originators of Islam and Islamic practice, and that's why you see white converts dressing like Arabs because they want to signal that they're Muslim. And you, you can't tell if they are a, a ginger w- who's just wearing Western clothing. Uh, they, they're they trying to signal that they're uh, a Muslim. And that's like saying that, you know, the, the, the Vatican and the, you know, the religious uh, iconography that you see in, like, uh, Russian Orthodox churches, that as a secular person... I can't enjoy those things while also not wanting to behead infidels or, uh, you know, not suffer a witch to live. I mean, you're the, there's two completely different things happening there. There's cultural practices, which includes music and dance and poetry and all these things that are completely benign. These are things that people should be engaging in more often, and then and spending less time uh, focused on you know the specifics of you know thousand year old books. If they were, then we wouldn't be having these problems. We would have a lot of really great Middle Eastern music and dance and wine. <laughs> so I don't, I'm kind of failing to see what his point is there. Aside from again, uh, if there ha- already has been a reformation, then there's no need for reformation, and this is what Islam looks like when it's reformed. Or Omer doesn't know what he's talking about, <laughs> which I think he's taking a very liberal view of Islam. Okay, the, the pause you hear from me is I, I'm trying to figure out how to proceed here because, you know, given how we have foundered on very simple points, 
I'm reluctant to just set sail on a rougher part of the, the sea here. So briefly, Islam is, is many things. And on one level, you can define it as Islam is the way 1.6 billion Muslims live it. It's, it's whatever they think it is. And now we know a fair amount about the moral and political and theological attitudes of Muslims based on a lot of polls. And most of those polls are frankly terrifying, both in the Muslim world and in— And most in, of those it, polls are bullshit too. No, well, that, this, well, this, I, don't, I don't know how you would know that. If you ask 50,000 okay. people a question and they give you an answer— I'll tell you why. I'll I don't know where you, you stand. But, but no, but the reason— No, no, no. Well, I'll, let but, me tell you why but, the polls can but be let me bullshit. But let me just finish okay. this point. I, I, don't, I don't think we should spend a lot of time right here, right now. The problem for me about Revelation— and this is this is why I focus on the text, is that the, the texts are a, essentially a software program for rebooting a worldview. I mean, so we could forget about Islam for a thousand years, and someone could discover the full text of the tradition, the Quran and the Hadith and the biography of Muhammad in a cave somewhere, and read it and accept its most straightforward, most literalistic claims, I mean, just to give a very plausible, literal reading of what they have there, and essentially reboot Islam for themselves. And it would be a, it would be a particular kind of Islam. It would be an Islam that would, would not at all be influenced by anything else surrounding them, because all of that would have been lost. There'd be no architecture, there'd be no art, there'd be no tradition, there'd be no food. But they would have the texts. And if they understood the texts in a plausible way, my problem is that what they would get is something very much like Wahhabism and a lot less like Rumi, okay? And that's a problem. A plausible reading of the text, I'm not saying it's the only reading, and again, Majid and I get into this in, in real detail, but a plausible reading gets you something totalitarian, intolerant, a rather unlucky circumstance for women. Contradictory as well. Right. Schizophrenic, yeah, you yeah, could say. Yeah, Intellectually yeah, schizophrenic. No, but not, so. not as contradictory as one would hope. It's not as contradictory as Christianity or, or Judaism. It's, and that's the there's, problem. There's no compulsion in religion and the sword yes, verses. But yes, if you okay, kill one okay. person. But if you, if you have a doctrine of abrogation that makes sense of that, then you're better smooth yeah, sailing. Of course, many people don't adhere to that. What you're basically parroting here is the Salafist version of Islam, which is a particular interpretation that comes out of the Arabian Peninsula in the 17th, 18th century and is led by a totalitarian radical who's not trained in Islamic tradition at all. Okay, so basically, like I said, um, you find the Monopoly rule book, you can recreate Monopoly. Okay, and that's basically what the analogy Sam Harris was just using. Say, so found the Quran in the future. There was no more Islam. You just found the Quran. You would recreate it, and it would look something like the Islam we have today, and it would have, still have all the negative aspects. Now, what Omer just did, though, is essentially a no true Scotsman fallacy. I mean, he's saying he wasn't this this uh, the guy who created the Salafism wasn't versed in Islamic tradition and Islamic law. Well. It, who is and who gets to decide what is official and not and if you have people who are deciding what is official or not then they then they can instruct people to not follow specific doctrines and then this is where there's probably there's probably schism within Islam itself you probably have the conservative you know, orthodoxes and you have the more liberal ones but what we want in the west and what secular people want is for that side to prevail. We, we want to defang and declaw this absurd nonsense from, you know, over a thousand years ago. We want this to stop and to be treated as a possibly moral guide to living, not a warrant to commit violence, which is what it seemingly is being used for as Christianity was once used for, as sometimes maybe, I don't know, Judaism is used for. Currently, this is how it's being used, and that's a problem. If it wasn't a problem, we wouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> and, that, and, and the West and the Ottoman Empire tried to put it down until, until it grew. So look, th this is a specific political interpretation. If I give you a text, Sam, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, if I give you a text and I tell you you can interpret this however you want, you're going to interpret it according to your political yeah. ideology. Okay. No, no, that, no. Okay, that's a strange kind of, uh, I don't know, perspective or, uh, I don't know. I mean, every anything, everything, Moby Dick, I mean, like, it's purely going to be political. I mean, your, your political motivations or your political focus uh, alignment 
could flavor your interpretation, right? I mean, your your perception of what's good and evil, and that would relate to maybe like the power structures that you live under, and then you know Romans become devils, or uh, you know infidels who oppose you become you know worthy of being killed. But the the overarching symbolism and the the nature of the uh, the holy books themselves relates to something that transcends politics. I mean, it's they claim to transcend human morality. They claim to be morally superior to human creations, uh, or similar human creations of morality, and as such should inform politics, not the other way around. And so I'm, I'm kind of confused as to how he arrives at it all being a matter of political uh, intentions or something. It's, it doesn't make any sense. But this, there, this, there this are more just... and less plausible interpretations of any text. And it, what, it is, what is problematic... And who says that the 99% of the Muslims who interpret it and live peacefully is less It's is not less because, plausible. because it is not 99% who have peaceful attitudes that are commensurate with the values of an of a open civil society. That's simply untrue. How Nine, many people are in ISIS? 20,000 maybe? Okay, there might be... 20,000 members of ISIS who are actually operating. However, the support that they have is going to be bigger than that, and you don't need highly highly motivated and highly violent and uh, extreme uh, uh, Islamic militants to be contrary to the other values of Western civilization. Forcing women to wear burqas and hijabs, yeah, the Saudis are maybe Wahhabists by Omer's standards, so he wouldn't support that. But, you know, dress codes and uh, uh, modesty police, like in Iran, these things aren't violently extreme per se, but they are anathema to what we in the West consider to be basic societal practices. Now, you can argue the specific points of any specific, you know, uh, cultural practice, but the the real issue here isn't as with Christians. There are Christian militants and fundamentalists. The issue isn't just the really violent minority. The issue is the blanket uh, level of the ambient level of belief that exists, which promotes that kind of behavior, as well as the the less extreme who merge and mingle with the rest of the population, and they vote based on extreme views. They might not act in extreme ways, but they are culturally and societally corrosive, maybe even politically, and that's part of the issue as well. It's not purely just the dangerous, violent, you know, ISIS militants. They are definitely a problem and need to be dealt with, but it's that there are religious and spiritual transcendent rules and laws that these people follow that run contrary to fundamental beliefs held by the Western world, and not just the Western world, but many industrialized and civilized nations. 99% of Muslims are uh, supportive of Ayan's right to apostatize. 99% of Muslims are supportive of the rights of cartoonists to cartoon anything they want about Islam. Are you telling me you believe that? So on the point of free speech, that's actually more of a cultural issue than it is of a theological issue. And I hope we can make that distinction. There's nothing in the Quran that says, nothing in the text or the tradition, the history even, that says that you cannot depict the prophet. In fact, in Shia Islam and throughout Islamic history, there were depictions you're, you're, of, but, uh, no of one, the no one is I'm limited clarifying to, for you. Okay. I'm, I'm clarifying but this you, point but, for you no, but so you're we all, can get but, into no, the nuances. You're also making a tendentious, illegitimate move. You're limiting it to a depiction of the prophet. That's not the free speech issue. Both, the free Free speech issue is I should be able to say that Islam sucks and I should be able to say that as a Muslim. I should be able to apostatize. That is free speech. Yeah. Yeah. And look, you can you can do that in, in, in the West. And, and you can no- get and you can get your head cut off in any Muslim society on earth, and many Muslims, many, many Muslims, in, in many cases majorities, <laughs> support that. 
A fundamental principle of every human being in terms of their dignity is to have whatever private theological views that they want. Now, whether that translates into a public uh, political view is another matter. Egyptians say 86% of them think that apostates should be killed. Now, A, they never they think this is the word of God, apparently, according to you. They think it's the word of God. They don't go out and they don't kill ex-Muslims. They're friends with them. You can go to Egypt and go to Cairo and you see that. They had the opportunity to vote and put in apostasy into their, into their legal code. They didn't do it. They didn't do it in Pakistan either where there was an election. Haven't done it in Iran either. So people can have all kinds of dangerous, deluded, backwards views and, and, and you're, you're right. You have the right to that, as many evangelicals in, in America do. But to translate that into a political program is something that's very different. And I think that we should be mindful of that distinction rather than saying that, oh, these people over here are so backwards that 99 percent of them or 80 percent of them ha- think that apostates should be killed. And that's the end of the story right there. No, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Okay, and, well, I, and I want to uh, bring that to light. Uh, again, that, well, this is a distinction without a difference. When you have a lynch mob that's willing to enforce their religious attitudes, whether or not there's a, a formal law against blasphemy on the books, they're willing to kill blasphemers or kill someone who is merely rumored to have burned a Quran. Okay, Sam Harris is, is referencing an actual event. It's called the Killing of Farkunda. And I've seen the video. It's on the New York Times website. Basically, a 27-year-old Muslim woman was falsely accused of burning a Quran and was killed by a mob in Kabul, uh, Afghanistan. Now, the the in the course of the video, I mean, she's assaulted, she's hit with stones, and 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 she's ultimately burned alive due to an accusation that she burned a Quran. There's hundreds of witnesses. People are filming it with their smartphones, and it's it's just it's like watching uh, cats go after a you know a wounded bird. It's, it's just insane, and that's kind of what he's getting at here: is that it's not just those who are actually and directly involved in the lynch mob, and it's not the law. Like the police were there trying to protect her, sure. But how committed are they when there's all these angry mob there? And that's why these things don't necessarily need to become written into law. You have This would have gotten taken care of by these people. They would have done the same thing, whether it was on the books or not. Or kill someone who was apostatized, or hunt them to the ends of the earth in other societies, right? Suborn their murder with fatwas that are now have global reach. That is a problem that is bigger than the statutes that were written or not written in any society. I mean, 5% of Saudi citizens are convinced atheists, and more than that, about 15%, or probably and, and about, I, 6 million, about 6 million, around 20% are not religious people. Are there and, lynch mobs oh, against them? Yes, are there, are they yes, being beheaded? Yes, Omer, I hear from these people. They're in hiding. They can't even tell their parents they have doubts about God for fear of being murdered by their own families. Yeah, and many of them are in open. Many of them are open. You go to the cafes of Cairo, you go to Riyadh, you go to Amman, you meet openly um, critical people, you meet openly agnostic and atheistic people. So, so it's not as simple, it's not as simple, yes, Sam, okay, so, saying that... So, 86% of Egyptians think apostates should be killed. Therefore, all those 86% are all backwards people. So, so if we did the same thing to the United States, we'd think that oh, please. 85... Not- Omer, please. I mean, you're telling me that, that Raif Badawi is one of the 5% of Saudi atheists who's just free to be an atheist? Stood up for him many times when other people on, on the left did not. And I don't deny that, that there needs to be a liberal and constitutional revolution in the Middle East and South Asia. In fact, this is the, I want to bring this back to the broader point that I'm making is that your strategy and Ayan's strategy of telling Muslims we have to excise verses. Let's just say, even if it's the most intellectually honest position that you, that anyone could have, let's assume that strategically and politically, it's never going to happen because people believe in the Quran and their, in their tradition, and they're not going to take a razor to their holy books. What I want to see happen is a liberal and democratic and constitutional revolution that happens across the Middle East and South Asia, where we support the left, the progressive opposition that exists in every country, the democratic opposition that exists in every country. But because of U.S. foreign policy and because of domestic tyrants and because of religious tyrants, the religious right, that hasn't been allowed to emerge. And when that opposition comes in, it's going to, the cultural change they'll implement will be permanent. And so though, that is basically my view on this. How do you engender those liberal attitudes yeah. when a majority of people believe 
as is written in the books, whether you're talking about the Quran or you're talking about the Hadith or you're talking about the biography of Muhammad, they believe things like women are essentially the property of the men in their lives or at the very least second-class citizens or they believe things like apostates should be put to death or they believe things like infidels and polytheists are forever your enemy, right? You, you have attitudes that can be lifted directly out of the texts based on not only a plausible reading, I would say on certain of these points, the most plausible reading, even on certain of these points, the only plausible reading. And you're saying that these texts are forever to be held sacred. One can never disavow any line in them. Now, the fact that the Quran is supposedly unalterable or inalterable comes from the Quran itself. Um, I found a couple passages here uh, from uh, IslamHelpline.net. So they cite it as, you know, Allah says in the Holy Quran, chapter 5, Surah Al-Maidah, verse 13, and I would say Muhammad told us that Allah said in the Holy Quran, chapter 5, Surah Al-Maidah, verse 13, <clears throat> then they, the Jews, broke their covenant, and because of this we deprived them of our mercy and hardened their hearts. Now they have become so degenerate that they distort the words of the scriptures so as to change their meanings completely. Also, Muhammad says, Allah says, in the Holy Quran, chapter 4, Surah Nisa, verse 46, of the Jews there are those who displace words from their right places and say, we hear and we disobey, and hear what is not heard, and ra'ina, with a twist of their tongues and a slander to faith. If only they had said, we hear and we obey, and do hear, and do look at us, it would have been better for them and more proper. But Allah hath cursed them for their unbelief, and but few of them will believe. So basically, there's this kind of uh, rationalization and a kind of uh, pedantic uh, uh, code code working with uh, you know the the Torah and uh, Talmud that you know a lot of there are there are Orthodox Jews who engage in very strange um, workarounds. You see this in the movie. Uh, uh, religious when uh, Bill Maher interviews some uh, Orthodox Jews and they uh, are not supposed to do certain things on the Sabbath. They're supposed to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Uh, they're not supposed to use like a motor vehicle. They're not supposed to, I, I don't know, somehow they arrived at not use buttons, not use elevators, uh, all these kinds of things. And so they've developed inventions that work around these uh, prohibitions and their defense was well if there's a loophole in the law then God wanted that loophole to be there <laughs> so you're you're kind of uh, parsing and skimming the rule book and figuring out ways around the rules that you know allegedly God handed down no this is an indictment from the you know the Islamic text about that. So that's their attitude towards altering or reinterpreting the laws that, or the, the, the teachings, the words of Muhammad, because they're allegedly perfect. And there's this interesting, I mean, in looking for this stuff, there's this interesting kind of, I don't know what you call it, they, they sometimes refer to it as the miracle of the consistency of the Quran, that the Quran has never been altered. And, you know, in theory, because it can't be. And this is fascinating because, I mean, for the most part, you know, Moby Dick has been around a couple hundred years. Eh, it's it hasn't been altered. Um, certain older texts have just not been altered. It's not a miracle uh, necessarily, but they have this uh, very. It's a doctrinal opposition to reinterpretation, and I've read somewhere uh, to be completely. Uh, be completely fishy here. Uh, it was something like, the Quran is actually written in an emerald tablet in the sky, and that our earthly copies are the closest approximation to that, right? But that they are also holy and are a representation of that uh, 
emerald tablet. And so the emerald tablet cannot be changed. Thus, our earthly copies cannot be changed either. This is a inherent uh, doctrinal barrier to reinterpreting the teachings of Muhammad, and keep in mind that Muhammad was a warlord in the Arabian Peninsula. So his behavior is seen as being uh, holy and and, uh, and admirable, and you can't detract from that with Islam, because Islam purely, as you know, as I kind of pointed out, it comes through Muhammad is how the entire thing started. So you can't remove the Muhammadian influence from the scriptures, and you can't distance them even without altering the text. You can't alter the text, so Muhammad remains in a holy and enshrined position, and his behavior is replicated. <sighs> okay, so... I'm going to call it here. Uh, we're going to cut this uh, section, and this will be part two. You know, I, I hope we learned a lot. Again, this is a slightly pedantic and uh, and crazy uh, parsing of this entire interview, but I'm I'm chasing down the leads and the, the uh, claims of both sides, and I, I feel like on some level, both Sam Harris and Omer Aziz, they, they in some sense have the same goal, similar to uh, Majinua's. You want to see less violence in the world, you want to see uh, more cooperation, and you don't want to see violence that's being caused by supernatural beliefs in ancient religious books, because that that doesn't really make any sense at all. Um, You have to make decisions that that better your life and are based on real-world observable effects, right? Like, war is bad because it destroys things. Uh, I don't understand how burning a Quran should cause you to be stoned to death, but, you know, here we are. And this is where, uh, again, the specific types of clashes are really only happening within Islam, not really happening within uh, other religions. Not that other religions don't have their problems, but again, if uh, Hindus were flying planes into buildings, then we would be having a different discussion. <laughs> God damn it. All right, started rambling again. All right, uh, this is part two. I hope hopefully just get the next part done in part three, but we'll see. Um, uh, Kyle Style Podcast, uh, go fund me, hit me up on Twitter, and uh, check back in for the next episode. Thanks.